All right. Good morning, church. It's great to see you. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11 is where we're going to be this morning. And um, <clears throat> per usual, while you turn there, I want to give you a couple updates on some things and let you know about some things. Um, as Jeff said, uh, we've got dinner tonight, and uh, we're going to do that rain or shine. If it's raining, we'll just move the dinner inside, but we care about our church body um, developing authentic community and being a family with one another, and uh, that means we eat in here. While it's raining outside, we're all for it. Um, we're not going to accidentally stumble into great family community relationships here at this church. Um, it's something we have to intentionally work at. So um, if you're new, if you're a guest, if you've just been checking us out, the invitation is just as much for you as it is for our folks. Um, our church family would want nothing more than for you to join us over a meal and just get to know people and hang out. There's literally no agenda other than that, just to break bread together, um, to let the Lord kind of knit our hearts together as we get to know one another. So um, come, we've got plenty of barbecue, whether you signed up or not, don't feel like you have to go chase down the sign up, just show up at six o'clock tonight and we'll feed you and uh, bring your neighbors, bring your family. Um, your kids, your wife, everybody, just come on, and uh, we got plenty of barbecue. Barbecue is one of those things that the Lord just kind of multiplies anyways, so uh, there will be plenty, um, so we'd love to have you. Um, secondly, and then uh, we'll read our text and pray, um, if you're at our church and you get emails from both campuses, um, some of you might not know, we're a two-campus church, and uh, um, East Memphis campus is going to be doing a family service Sunday next Sunday, uh, where they will have kids in the service. Um, we feel the need to do that, and we're going to prioritize that as well. We're going to make a couple tweaks to ours, though, and we're not going to do it next Sunday. Um, we're actually going to do it on September the 25th, so we want you to know about that September the 25th. And on that Sunday, it's actually High Point's 20th anniversary. Um, I think it's Carville's ninth anniversary, if I've done my math right. Um, we're going to do one service in here at 10 a.m., so we're going to do one service at 10 a.m., and kids first grade and up will be invited to join us in here. Uh, we'll move the kindergarten class downstairs to be with um, adults and parents and all the things over there. But we're going to do one service, one big family service to celebrate the anniversary. We've got some exciting things to celebrate and to talk about and all that stuff. And uh, after the service, I tell you all that because we're going to do a big family lunch afterwards. So instead of dinner next month, we're going to do a big lunch after the anniversary Sunday on the 25th. So we'd love for you to join us for that one big worship service. Um, essentially, with two services, you can almost create two congregations where there was a couple hundred people in the first service that you might not know. And uh, we'd love to occasionally have everybody together and worship together. Um, so I tell you all that because if you get a request to volunteer at 10 a.m. Uh, in a couple weeks, you know that's why. Um, we know we schedule ahead of time, and we want you to be aware of that when that stuff comes. But um, we'll give you more updates and more details and all that stuff. Uh, we're a month away, so we've got some time, but we'll give you all the details. Um, but let's jump into this text. Uh, Y'all, this is probably my favorite parable, and it has to go down as one of my favorite things that Jesus has ever said out of his mouth. So um, I'm really excited for this passage um, but the context of it, we're going to talk about the kingdom of darkness and Satan and demons and Jesus and the kingdom of God and the war that's going on and all of those things. Exorcism is present in this passage, um, all the deal. So um, if you've seen the movies, you're well equipped. For, no, I'm kidding. Um, but we're going to talk about those kind of things. Um, so I just want you to be aware of that. But let's start by reading it and praying and then we will dive into this passage. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read Luke 11, starting in verse 14, and we're going to read through verse 23. Um, it says this, Luke 11, starting in verse 14. 
Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We are in for it this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, God, we need your help. Um, Father, I need your help, and by your spirit, God, I just pray for boldness um, as we talk about things that are real and true that often we neglect when it comes to just the church world. Um, God, I've been wrestling with just the fear of man this week and wanting to, uh, to kind of soften the truth. And uh, God, I pray that by your spirit, um, you would keep me faithful to your word. God, you've called me to do um, one thing on this platform, and that's to preach your word as it is written. Um, one verse at a time. And uh, God, it's the way you intended your people to hear it. Um, so Father, help me to be faithful to that. And um, God, humble me. Um, I'm not the answer to this. Um, I don't mean to say any of those things to prop myself up. Um, God, you can use anybody because um, it's your word that has all the power. It's your word that's inspired. It's your word that you have written. Um, so God, help us to be students of it. And uh, God, I pray that your spirit that's in us um, would illumine the truth to us and teach us and uh, God, as we talk about some, um, some hard things, but some true things, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Um, those of you that are movie watchers, especially the young crowd, um, Jackson here, he's in my small group. Uh, if you notice about kind of the, the adventure movies these days, um, all of them start pretty much the same way. Um, if you think about Harry Potter, think about the Lord of the Rings, the Avengers, um, they all start with a world at war. Every single one of them. Um, Harry Potter, before you get into the seven you know, novels, eight movies, um, the first scene before you can get into the story is little Harry in a crib. And what is it? It's the one who must not be named going at it with Harry and his parents. And little Harry's just sitting there in the crib watching all these things. And you see a world at war. You see good and evil going at it. Lord of the Rings, before you even start the movie, there's like 12 minutes of backstory of just how for ages and ages and ages, the kingdom of darkness has been at war against the kingdom of light and the kingdom of good. And uh, same thing with Avengers. If you've ever seen Infinity War, how does it open? It opens with just a spaceship blown up in space and this purple guy shows up and his name is Thanos and it's the kingdom of darkness coming after uh, the good guys, right? Um, but I tell you that because we all resonate with those things. There's a reason that movie producers and writers start movies with those things because you and I can resonate with a world at war, can't we? That we live in a world that we know fundamentally is not as it should be, that it is broken and it is at war. And you can try to deny that this is a spiritual thing, but you've got a lot of explaining to do, right? That we know that it's not just physical things that are broken. And in fact, the physical things that are broken are manifestations of spiritual things that are broken within us. That when you get broken people creating things, that they just show up broken, that they're not perfect, that they don't always work the way they should. And you can try to deny the fact that this is a spiritual issue and a spiritual war, but you've got a lot of explaining to do. 
with society, right? And why things are so dark and so broken. Why is something as beautiful as humanity, why do we do things to each other that we do, right? You look at civilizations that kill people in mass quantities, and you know you can try to chalk it up to, well, it was a certain leader or it was a lack of education, but look at Nazi Germany in the 40s and 50s. They were one of the most educated countries in the world. And we can, we can talk about other systems and other leaders and other people, but then we've got to turn the mirror around to ourselves and go, man, I've got morals and I've got standards and I can't even keep my own, right? But the problem is not out there. Um, there are problems out there. Right? But so often we try to look at the world and blame the physical, blame the things that we can see, that it's just the other side of the political aisle, or it's this certain person, or this candidate, or this leader, or this system. But the problem, if we want to be honest, is deep within us. The physical problem is just a manifestation of the, the spiritual brokenness within us. And I know this is a chipper message from the start, right? But there's something beautiful about us. We are made in the image of God. We have dignity and value because of that in Genesis 2, but because of Genesis 3 there is something also that's fundamentally broken within us. And as we talk about these things this morning, we're gonna talk about Satan and demons and possession and kingdom and all those kind of things. And I tell you all that to say that we're in a war and this is actually a lot of the things that, that preachers in pulpits, and I don't say this to elevate me, like I said, I'm, I'm really trying to approach this humbly. Um, but if you just look at the church at large, this is something that we often avoid that we tell you half the gospel, that preachers love to talk about peace and joy and happiness and freedom and purpose and all those things, but we don't like to talk about wrath and judgment and punishment for sin and sinners. We often hide that part, and we love to talk about how Jesus Christ came to, to give you new life and give you grace and mercy and love and all those things, which he did. But he is also just and holy and righteous, and it's that the, the other half of the gospel that we often leave out. And what's ironic is it's, it's actually the part that Jesus talked about the most. That outside of money, Jesus talked about hell. Like second in, in the priority of the topics, hell comes up second to money. And money is there, obviously, because it's um, something that Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is always after our hearts. He's not after your things, but he's after your hearts. And what's the one thing that's always going to compete with your heart? Stuff, possessions, money. And second to that, Jesus often talks about hell and the enemy and the evil one. And he has lots of names in scripture, which we will see. Um, but so often we give people half the gospel. The full gospel is that God created man in his image. And he put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to keep it and to, to dwell within it. And he gave them one command, be fruitful and multiply and don't eat from this tree. And God held Adam and Eve to perpetual, constant obedience to that command. And the problem is that Adam and Eve fell. They disobeyed that one command. And sin entered the world, and they are fundamentally broken from that point on. And also the problem is everyone born from them is now born into sin. We're born with a sin nature because we are born from that one man. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came who was not born of that man, which is why the virgin birth is so important. Because Jesus was not born from man. He was not born in a sinful nature. It was the Holy Spirit who conceived a baby in Mary. And God himself comes and takes on human flesh and he lives the perfect life that we could never live. He spends 33 years on this earth. As Hebrew says, he was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. 
And he willingly went to the cross. He was the perfect, spotless, clean, holy, no sin in him whatsoever. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. He went to the cross and died the death for sinners. And it wasn't just that he died in our place. It was that the God of the universe poured out his wrath towards sin. We want, there's part, we want God to be just. God is holy and righteous and just, and there's something in all of us that just longs for justice, right? But the problem is, if God were to give us justice, then we would all die because we're born in sin. So what did God do? He is just and the justifier of the ungodly, or uh, yeah, of the ungodly. He is just and holy and righteous, but he is also gracious and merciful and good. And how do we How do we see that? Where do we see that most? At the cross is where those two realities come together. Where God is just and he pours his wrath out towards sin and disobedience and he crushes his own son. But at the cross, we also see mercy and forgiveness and healing and redemption in Christ, in the character of God. In Exodus, when God describes himself Um, He says that he will by no means clear the guilty, but he also says he has compassion for generations. How in the world does that work? At the cross. God would be just and the justifier. And we have to talk about God's wrath and punishment towards sin because that's our story. And so often we leave off that part of the gospel that God is holy and righteous and he will punish sin. Every single sin ever committed on this earth will be punished either poured out on the wrath of God on Jesus Christ or it will be poured out from the wrath of God on the sinner forever. And I love you enough, seriously, I love you guys so much to tell you the whole truth and not just half the truth. How much do you have to hate someone to not tell them the truth? And I'm convinced that preachers who don't go here often or willingly and knowingly avoid things like this and realities like this do not love you. In fact, they love themselves more than they love you because they would rather have your approval and you be damned than say something hard and you get offended. So we're gonna talk about it this morning. And I was having lunch a couple weeks ago with Lloyd. Uh, We're at Tacos for Life. It's kind of one of our spots. And uh, we talked about this misconception when it comes to um, eternity and heaven and hell and specifically hell, um, that there's this belief, and I believed it growing up until I... Um, someone told me, but uh, there's this idea out there that Satan is going to spend forever in hell tormenting sinners. And let me tell you, that's not biblical. Satan is not going to be the one pouring out the punishment and the torment. He's going to be experiencing it. If Satan got to spend forever in hell tormenting people, that would be his heaven, right? He would love that. What does the end of the story say? Revelation 20 says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they, all three of them, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So who is pouring out the punishment and the justice in hell? It's God. God is the one who is pouring out his wrath and his punishment and his justice towards sin. On Satan and on sinners, which is why the gospel message is so urgent. That it is God himself who either pours out his wrath on his son, if you're hidden in Christ and put your faith in him and you're united to him, the, the, the wrath towards your sin is put on Jesus Christ. And the prophets in the Old Testament say that it pleased the Lord to crush him. 
But it also says that Jesus wasn't a victim, that it was God's sovereign plan to redeem a people to himself and rescue a bride for himself to crush his own son. But Jesus also says that this was according to his plan, that no one takes his life from him, that he lays it down on his own accord, that he wasn't a victim to this, that he willingly went to the cross in our place as a part of the eternal sovereign plan of God to rescue and redeem and make beautiful and holy a bride for himself, that you and I could be with God forever. That's the goodness of the gospel. And grace is so much sweeter under the backdrop or in front of the backdrop of wrath. If we're not all that bad and we don't deserve all that punishment, then God just did us a favor, threw us a bone. But if you and I are destined to hell because of our sin and God in his grace has come and rescued us and stood in our place and died the death that we deserve and took on the full wrath of God in our place, then that makes grace all the more sweeter, doesn't it? And that's the good news of the gospel. But we've got to preach the whole thing. And what I love about this passage is we're going to see Genesis 3.15 right before our eyes. Um, if you want to make a note in your Bible, this passage or this, this parable is also found in Matthew 12 and in Mark chapter 3. Um, if you want to make some cross-references and things later. Um, but if you remember Genesis 3.15... It is right as sin entered the world. Adam and Eve disobey the Lord. They're in their shame. I mean, the shame is still on them. They're still wearing it. And the father shows up. He goes to Adam and Eve. He asks them what they've done. They confess before him. He looks at the serpent and he says, I'm gonna put enmity. I'm gonna put hatred between you and this woman and your offspring and her offspring. So you've got Satan, Eve, Satan's offspring, demons, and we'll talk about and Eve's offspring, and then notice that God the Father starts using male singular pronouns. And he, he goes from the offspring of the woman, and he will bruise your head, and you shall strike his heel. Your translation might even say the seed of the woman, which is actually the word um, in the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, which is also glorious because women don't have seed. And I'll, you know, let parents explain that to the younger ones in the room, but it's, it's a foreshadowing that this would come from God, that a descendant of Eve can't provide this for herself, that God would divinely conceive a baby in Mary, and he would provide the descendant of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And how would he do that? Through his perfect life and his criminal's death and his resurrection. He would bruise the head of the serpent And he will ultimately, fully and finally defeat him when he returns. And Satan will strike his heel at the cross, thinking that he has dealt a decisive blow to God. But we'll see this right before our eyes. And one of the things that I also thought of that we'll see is, uh, if you remember way back in Luke 2, at the end of Luke 2, we often don't read this story because we usually stop at the Christmas narrative and we don't fast forward eight days until Jesus is presented at the temple. Um, But at the end of Luke chapter 2, Jesus and... Uh, is presented at the temple. Mary and Joseph take him there on the eighth day, and uh, he meets uh, a couple people, but one of those is Simeon, and Simeon uh, was promised by God that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. And Simeon gets to hold baby Jesus, and he lifts him up in his arms, and he says that this person has been appointed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. And he looks at Mary and says, your heart is going to be essentially, um, this sword is gonna pierce your heart, And then he says that the thoughts of many men will be revealed. And in this parable, in this story, we're going to see the fall, the fall of some and the rising of some in Israel 
And we're going to see the thoughts of men's hearts revealed, that what is thought and what is seen and what is done in secret will be brought to light. And we're going to see all of these things in this parable. But before we dive into it, we've got to ask the question. Some of you are like, demons, really? Like, are those even real anymore? Uh, we've got to ask the question, right? We don't see them as prevalent in America. Are they real? Are they not? Biblically, and per the testimony of missionaries all around the globe, yes, they are. They sure are. That Satan is real, demons are real, and if you've never been given a theology around Satan and the demonic and evil, um, Satan is real, he has authority on this earth, but so many of us have kind of this dualistic view when it comes to God and Satan, like they are both sovereign and they're just in this eternal chess match where they both have unlimited power and God's just reacting to Satan and Satan's just reacting to God. That is not biblical. Satan has been given dominion on this earth, but he is on a leash. He is chained. You see in Job, prime example, he has to go to God the Father and ask to do things, to torment people. But he is not sovereign. He has lots of power, more power than any of us in our human flesh. And he's been given for a temporary amount of time the ability to, to torment and distract and tempt and all the things, um, but he is not sovereign. God is not in heaven reacting to what Satan is doing, like an ambulance driver where he's just gotta show up and clean up the mess. No, God is sovereign. If God were not sovereign over every molecule in the universe, he would not be God. And we should not take anything that he has to say as worth anything. If he's not the ruler and over all of the universe, the Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. But, We've got to then ask the question, okay, why in the world do we not see a lot of demonic activity in America? I'll never forget, uh, in 2011, I got to go to Kenya, and uh, we went to, flew into Nairobi, went to this um, village called Karagoto outside of Nairobi, and uh, the local pastor there was named James, and I'm sure he had, you know, a more Kenyan name, but uh, we called him James, and uh, he was humble, he was meek, he was tall and lean, and he served us. And uh, just a really awesome guy. He was there every morning for breakfast with us and kind of gave us the plan of the day. And I'll never forget, it was like a Tuesday morning. We're down there for breakfast in the hotel and James is late. And he walks in and he kind of sits by me and my youth pastor at the time was one of my heroes. And James just looks at us and politely apologizes. And he says, hey, I'm sorry I was late. And uh, he says, we got a call this morning um, that there was someone in the village possessed by a demon and we had to go and pray and get rid of it. And like, didn't smile didn't say, just kidding, like just a normal Tuesday for James was there was a demon in the village in this person and they had to go and pray over this man and remove the demon. And I remember sitting there just like, what in the world have we got ourselves into? Like, am I going to get to see any of this? Like all the things. And my youth pastor was like, just be quiet. And you know, it's, but we got to talk about it and we have to ask the question, okay, why in the world do we hear all of these reports from missionaries around the globe talk about demonic activity? And I'm not saying it doesn't exist at all in America. Um, some of you might have a, an experience or know someone that's it's been through something like this. But by and large, it's not. And the question is why? And I would venture to say, because why in the world would Satan shock us into potential belief by sending a demon when he can just lull us Americans to sleep and get us to live for our own name and for our own kingdom and fall in love with our possessions and our stuff 
and just love ourselves instead of come face to face with spiritual attack. Like, why would he do it? He has got America fooled. He's got a shock. We talked about a couple weeks ago, 70% of all Americans confess and think that, that they are saved, that they are Christians. Why in the world would he shock us into belief? If you think about it, if you come face to face with a demon, then you now have to believe that the demonic is real, that the heavenly is real, that the divine is real, that God is real, that there's an enemy and that there's a battle going on. Like you come face to face with a lot of truth to accept the fact that there's a demon there. So why would he do that when he can just lull us to sleep and give us new and shiny things and distract us and keep us occupied with ourselves and our own little kingdoms? Some of you um, might have seen the documentary. Um, it's called Sheep Among Wolves. Uh, it's about the church that's growing in Iran. It came out a couple years ago, I believe. And um, in the documentary, I'll never forget the quote, but it's this woman who was saved in Iran, who fled to America. Iran, Christianity is illegal, but it's also where it's growing the fastest, which those are not um, you know, at odds. That's typically what happens when Christianity is illegal. You find the genuine and the real, and they're spreading the gospel. But she flees to America, and she's talking to this person filming the documentary, and she's saying, I've got to get back to Iran. And he's like, why in the world would you go back? And her response is that there is a spiritual slumber across America, and I am so afraid that I'm going to be lulled to sleep just like the rest of this nation. I want to go back to where the battle is real and where God is at work and where there is opposition to the kingdom of God instead of this just sleep, this deep sleep that's over our nation. I was like, wow. And I think she has a point. I really do. Because you have to come face to face with a lot of truth. And God can use some of the darkest moments to bring us to a realization that he exists. Some of you, that might be a part of your story. There's a book um, called A Beautiful Boy by a father um, who wrote this book talking about um, his son's addiction and battle and struggle with meth. And throughout the book, midway through the book, he says, I don't believe in God whatsoever but seeing my son go through this darkness has caused me to believe that there is a devil, that there is an enemy, because only the devil could create something this dark. And by the end of the book, the man has put his faith in Jesus. And God used coming face to face with darkness and spiritual opposition to bring this man to faith in Christ. I don't know if you're a music person who's into the metal stuff. Uh, there's a band called Korn uh, with a K. Um, I was corrected in the first service. I said it was their lead singer. It's not. It's their guitar player. Um, I'll leave the man nameless who listens to Corn and corrected me, but um, came up and corrected me and said uh, that the guitarist for Corn, I think he said his name was Chad. Um, I'll stand corrected again if I got that wrong, but uh, was self-proclaimed atheist like many of his other band members, um, but it was through just seeing the world and seeing how dark it was and realizing that this just isn't a physical darkness. This isn't just bad policy. This isn't just you know bad role models for the kids. No, this is like a spiritual darkness, but it was through his realization of seeing just how dark the world is that he came to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So God can often use darkness and demonic activity and demons. God can work all things for our good and for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. He can work all things even the darkest of days. So if you're in here this morning, commercial break, and you're walking through some dark times, hold fast. Christ might be using this to show you himself and show you his mercy and his grace 
and that you are deserving of wrath, but he will put that on his son if you put your faith in Christ. So, I've talked enough. You've seen the, the value of this parable. Let's dive into it. Verse 14. We'll move pretty quickly. Um, it's not very long. It says this in verse 14. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. So this, Luke doesn't shed any details, right? There's a demon-possessed man, and often it, that is the case when the spiritually demonic overcomes someone, we also see some biological effects that this person has been possessed by a demon to the point where this guy can't speak. Now Jesus shows up, he's casting out this demon, and the demon goes out, and the mute man speaks, and I think this is awesome because you'll see that this provides lots of trouble for the scribes and the Pharisees who have to try to explain this thing away in just a minute. But have you ever noticed that when Jesus heals someone, he doesn't like halfway heal them? He doesn't like heal them in process. Like when Jesus gives a blind man his sight back, it's not like, hey, give it three days and then you'll be able to see, you know, take a couple of Tylenol, wait three days and then your sight. No, it's like instantly, like spit on some mud, rub it on the man's eyes, he opens them and he's got 20-20 vision, Right? When Jesus heals a lame man, it's, it's not like he gets up like you know a newborn giraffe or a, a deer where he's like wobbling. No, the scriptures often say that he stood up and he runs and he jumps and he praises the Lord, right? Instantly, I'd be trying to backflip and then he'd have to heal me again, right? But just all the things. When Jesus turns water into wine, the, the, the master of the feast says, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. Why are we waiting this long to serve the good wine? That when Jesus often heals someone, he heals them perfectly. He takes them from broken to perfectly whole in an instant. And you see him do this with this man. He had a demon possession. Jesus cast out the demon. The demon caused him to be mute. And now the man is speaking probably as well as Abraham Lincoln, right? Just has lots to say, which provides an issue for the scribes and the Pharisees. But I do want to not fly by this verse. So many times if you are around church too much, not too much, but if you're around church a lot, enough, we can just become numb to angels and demons. We read the Christmas story and an angel shows up to shepherds and we just act like it's a normal thing. Like, oh, look, there's an angel in the den again, right? Like, we're just used to seeing angels. No, like this is a big deal. It can't become too familiar with us that Satan, through the means of demons, means by any means necessary to make you his slave. He does. He will try to uproot the seed of the gospel before it takes root in your heart or your kids' hearts. He will try to blind your mind in unbelief. He will try to exchange the truth about God for a lie. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to make you his slave. And the good news of the gospel is greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, that if you're in Christ, he can't indwell you. Demons can't indwell you if you're in Christ. He can't snatch you from the Father's hand, but he can still, you better believe, he can distract you, he can tempt you, he can oppress you, he can go after you and your family and your kids. He sure can, and he wants to. He sure does. Scripture refers to him as the ruler of this world in John 14. They call him the little G God of this age who has blinded the minds of unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 4. He's the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. He's also... Um, the spirit who's at work in those that are disobedient in Ephesians 2. Revelation 12 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. 
And 2 Timothy 2, which I had not seen this until this week, says that um, it's he, it's Satan, that holds unbelievers captive to do his will. And before you and I are in Christ, if you are not in Christ, that Satan has you captive to accomplish more of his purposes. Crazy to think about. He blinds minds of unbelievers. He deceives the whole world. And he is so crafty. It's interesting, and it's not an accident, that the first adjective attributed to the serpent in the garden is that he's crafty. Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the garden that was created. Because he is so crafty that Satan can get us to not just not even recognize that we're in slavery, but he's so crafty that he has convinced the world to cherish their slavery, right? Apart from Christ, we love the world. We love our own name. We love our own glory. We love the pleasures of this world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We love all of those things. It's not just that he shows us, or, or not even shows, that he just secretly puts us in bondage, which is another reason why he's not going to attack us in America. It's Espionage 101, right? Like, don't let the enemy know that you're there. And he sure has. But he gets us to love the things of this world, to cherish our slavery, to become devoted to our own sin and our slavery. And we don't make any efforts to find freedom in our own. He's so crafty that we think we're free right in the middle of our bondage. That's my story. For some of you, that's probably your story. As I pursued things in this life that I thought would fill me up and satisfy me and make me whole and give me peace and joy and happiness, all of those things that I thought would give me freedom left me in bondage. And he is so crafty that he will promise freedom and you'll end up in chains. He is the deceiver of the world. And Jesus casts out this demon and per usual, you've got onlookers and townspeople and crowds marveling, and you've got scribes and Pharisees who are trying to maintain this religious system where they're the elite and it's all about your behavior, they've got some explaining to do because they're not happy with this. Jesus is saying, welcome all the sinners, all of those who are broken, all those who are sick, all those who are outcast according to the world, come to me, you'll be saved, you'll find mercy, you'll find grace. And the scribes and the Pharisees trying to keep up this religious game are going, no, 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 we've got to put an end to this. And the problem is, is they're not able in this situation to say that Jesus made this whole thing up. You know, behind the house back there, he paid the man to not talk for a bit and then to start, no, because the man can speak now. So now he's, no, no, I, I was mute and now I can speak. So notice what they attack. They don't attack if Jesus cast out the demon or not. What they do is they, they attack the authority by which Jesus cast out the demon because they can't explain away whether it happened or not. The man's able to speak. He'll testify, right? So now they've got to come up with a reason as to how Jesus did this. And here's what they come up with. Verse 15. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So they use the word Beelzebul, which is an Old Testament word for the pagan god of the Canaanites, but over time throughout the Old Testament just became a stand-in for Satan himself. And you'll see that because they give that qualifying phrase, the prince of demons, 
which there's a lot in this phrase theologically that we can glean from, that Satan is the prince of demons, that there's an authority structure within the demonic realm, that just like Christ is the head of the church, Satan is the head of the kingdom of darkness, and there's some authority. So that means that demons don't just torment people to torment people, that they have an, a higher purpose and a higher aim, and that's to, to do the, the will of Satan, their prince, their ruler. Jesus uses kingdom language in a minute, so we'll see that this is a kingdom of God going to war against the kingdom of the enemy. But they use this term Beelzebul. Essentially, they're saying that Jesus is casting out this demon by the power of the devil. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees come up with. He's using Satan's authority. He's using Satan's power to cast out this demon. And I mentioned that Satan has demons that are his instruments, and we don't have time to dive into this, um, but this is why the gospel is so important. But scripture also presents false teachers as instruments of Satan. And if you want to look it up, you can go to 2 Corinthians 11, a um, couple of verses, 3 and 4, and then 13 through 15 later. Um, but Paul warns, hey, watch out for those that preach another gospel, that preach another spirit, that preach another Christ. And he says, Satan disguised himself as an angel of light, and so do his servants, referring to these false teachers. He literally calls them servants of Satan. In Acts 5, when Ananias lies to um, the early church um, about their money and their property and those things, um, Peter says, why has Satan so filled your heart? And in John 8, one of the more famous ones, Jesus is talking to the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he calls them, he calls the devil their father. He calls them sons of the devil. So even unbelievers can be instruments of Satan. Now, I want to be clear and you know, give charity also. Just because someone says something false doesn't make them an instrument of the devil. Um, all of us, when we are newly saved and we're just learning, we all say false things, right? Um, please don't hold me to my sermons when I first started in youth ministry because uh, if that's the standard, then I don't pass, right? Um, what he's referring to there are people who are unrepentant false teachers who know that they're intentionally withholding information or twisting the gospel, deceiving people um, just for their praise and their money and their wallets and all the things. Those unrepentant false teachers are biblically are instruments of the devil. But we need to keep moving. Um, so Jesus goes on the offensive here. They accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of the devil. And then what's interesting is in verse 16, this is just kind of a statement that Jesus doesn't even acknowledge. It says, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven, which is so interesting. The man literally just cast out a demon from somebody and they're like, hey, can you show us a sign from heaven? <laughs> like, what? Can you, you know, make pigs fly or can you make the sun go backwards? Like, Jesus doesn't even acknowledge it. Like, you clearly, I've given you enough that the miracles were there to, to validate the messenger and the Messiah and his gospel. And Jesus says, I've just cast out a demon before your eyes and you're still asking me for signs. Like, you clearly aren't trying to see me for who I am. So he doesn't even acknowledge their statement. But then we see what he does acknowledge, verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, Jesus knows the secrets of man's heart. He knows their thoughts. What's done in the dark will be brought to light. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. 
And I love this because Jesus is entirely theological because he is the word of God, but he is also just very logical. And he says, why in the world would Satan use his own power to cast out a demon and attack his own kingdom? Like, it's completely illogical. Why would Satan use his own means to attack his own kingdom? Jesus says it makes no sense. It's completely illogical. No commanding officer would command his troops to attack each other. He's just not going to do it. And he says, you're accusing me of using the power of Satan to cast out this demon. Why in the world would Satan do that? A house divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan, day by day, is getting his demons to attack others of his demons, that kingdom's not going to stand for anything. And he says, a house divided against itself will not stand. That's not the point of the text, but it's also a warning for us that a house divided against itself, a church divided from within will not stand. That if we start attacking one another and letting gossip take root in our church or anything like that, it will not stand. If we become divided against one another and not show each other the same grace that we've received. There's a lot more teenagers in the first service, but I warned them, this is why It is entirely crucial why they still have the time to marry someone who is a believer, if they're a believer. This is why there's so many biblical warnings to marry someone um, and be equally yoked with them. Why? Because a house divided against itself will not stand. That you want to unite your life with someone who believes the same things about God that you do, who's living their life for the same purpose and the same aim and the same goal and the same name that you are. Otherwise, it's going to be a struggle. And it doesn't mean the house just completely falls. God sovereign and can redeem situations. I know so many friends who got married before both of them knew Christ. And now they're both on their own individual journey to know the Lord. And God can use that and redeem that. God is in the business of taking um, ashes and turning them into beauty. But at the same time, the warnings of Scripture are still there. That if you knowingly have the option to pursue someone, if you're in Christ, who also loves the Lord, has died to self, is living their life to please the Lord, because a house divided against itself will not stand. So please don't hear me. I'm not throwing shame on anybody or anything like that. But the warning in scripture is still true. God can redeem your marriage. He can redeem any situation that you're in. You're not too far gone. So I, I did not say that, and I don't want you to hear me say that. But Jesus says a house divided against itself won't stand. A kingdom divided against itself is going to fall. And he says in verse 19, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And what he's referring to here is that there were exorcists, there were Jewish men um, who had cast out demons before. That although the Jews were sinners just like us, and often turned away from the way of the Lord, Um, God and his grace and his mercy, especially to defend the priesthood, which he instilled in um, Israel, he would often, by his power, allow these men um, to cast out demons for the glory of his name and for the good of those people. And uh, so there were Jews. um, Acts uh, 19, later on, mentions a couple of them um, that had cast out demons before. And what Jesus is saying here is that if if your sons, who are Jews, cast out demons, and you praise them for it, and I'm a Jew, and I'm casting out demons, and you slander me for it, and say that it's from the devil, how do you reconcile those? How does that make sense? And he says, what's going to happen is your sons are going to rise up, and they're going to disagree with you, and they're going to condemn you. They're going to be your judge. 
they're going to prove you wrong. Because you've got these people who had cast out demons before, and you praise it when it's them, and now you say it's by Satan, and you provide this illogical argument when it's me. Jesus is calling out their double standard and says, your own people will be evidence against you. And then he says this, verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God, which is a very interesting phrase, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the phrase, the finger of God, at least I counted four times in the Old Testament that this phrase comes up. And every time it comes up, it is denoting the power of God, which is why in Matthew's account and Mark's account, they actually use the spirit of God, which we know that anytime God exerts his power, he does that by means of the spirit. That when the power of God is enacted and is exerted, it's through the spirit of God. So Matthew and Mark use spirit, but I think it's no accident that Luke uses by the finger of God, and the four times in the Old Testament that that shows up, um, one of those is in Exodus chapter 8, which is right in the middle of God sending the ten plagues, and the magicians in Egypt, um, those that are supposed to be doing plague-like things, cry out in fear and say, the finger of God is upon us, that God with his very finger is sending down these plagues to Egypt. The other times in Exodus 31 and in Deuteronomy chapter 9, um, it is referred to that the finger of God was what wrote down the word of God onto the tablets, onto the, the, the Ten Commandments, onto the stone tablets. That it was the very finger of God that sent the plagues. It was the very finger of God that wrote his word on the tablets. And in Psalm chapter 8, David says that um, the heavens and the universe and the sun and all the planets are the works of his fingers. So this is a big statement. And Luke includes it on purpose because Jesus is essentially claiming to be the Messiah. He's saying the same power that sent the plagues, the same power that wrote the word of God, the same power that created the universe is the same power that just cast out that demon. He is claiming to be God in flesh in this moment. They knew these scriptures. It is the same power of God that has done all of this in the Old Testament. It's the same power of God working to cast out this demon. This is what Jesus is saying. And he says, he uses kingdom language. I'm doing this to advance the kingdom. I'm going to war against the kingdom of darkness. I've come to set the captives free. And how does Jesus explain this to us? He breaks out in a quick two-sentence parable. Probably my favorite parable of all time. And he says this, verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace... His goods are safe. And most of the time when we think of strong man in the Bible, we think of God. Um, Jesus, in this parable, he's actually referring to Satan here. He says Satan is a strong man, and he's fully armed, and he guards his own palace, and his goods are safe. And in the immediate context, he's talking about this demon that possessed this man, that it was stronger than the man. He came in. He took ownership of the man. He's got his plunder. He's got his stuff. He's armed, and his stuff is safe. He is totally content to have possession over this man. But in the greater context, Jesus is referring to the works of the devil. That Satan is strong. He's stronger than any one of us. And he has come and he has um, blinded the minds of unbelievers. He has taken captive unbelievers and they are doing his will and they don't even know it. They are worshiping the chains that he has put them in and loving them. He says he's got his plunder and he's armed and he's strong and his goods are safe. He's the ruler of this world. He's the God of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the spirit that's causing the world to be disobedient. He's holding us captive to do his will. 
1 John 5, verse 19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Satan is strong, and he's got his plunder, and his goods are safe. His goods are safe, meaning that anyone apart from Christ, we cannot break out of those chains on our own. We just can't. We can't save ourselves. There's no human being, no human means by which we can escape it. We can't free ourselves in our own strength. And then Jesus says, but when a stronger, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And this is why I love this parable. Jesus says there's a strong man who's got his stuff and it's secure. And then there's a stronger man who comes and beats up the strong man and takes his stuff. And that's me. That's what I've come to do. First John three, verse eight. This is the purpose for which the son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus says, I'm the stronger one is here. I've come to, in this immediate context, to remove the demon for this man, but in the greater context, I've come to rescue those, as Colossians says, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of my beloved son. I've come to defeat the strong one. I've come to take his plunder, to take his possessions and redeem a people to myself. The stronger one is here. Jesus is the stronger man. He's disarmed the enemy. How? Colossians 2, he disarmed him rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. The very thing that Satan would use us to chain us and, and bind us is our shame and our guilt over our sins. Some of you might have walked in here this morning just with shame all over you. And Jesus says, he put the enemy, he put the strong one to open shame. How did he do it? Through the cross, despising its shame. What armor did Jesus take from the devil? Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That since the children, since you and I, have flesh and blood and were in bondage, God himself likewise took on flesh and blood. And he himself likewise took part of those same things and he did not sin 33 years, tempted in every way, yet without sin, and then went to the cross and through his death for our sin, he destroyed the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and he delivered us from the fear of death which would enslave us for all of our lives. And the beauty of the gospel is now you and I as believers, we don't have to fear death at all, not physically or spiritually. If you are in Christ, you don't have to fear physical death because John tells us in his gospel, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. That we don't have to taste death for a second if you're in Christ. That Paul says, the moment we're absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. And we also don't have to fear spiritual death. We are united with Christ, we're sealed in his spirit, and nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Nothing. That's the goodness of the gospel. Jesus has come to overpower the enemy and take back what belongs to him. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And Jesus has come to disarm the enemy, to beat him down, to take his plunder, and now we are safe with him if you're in Christ. 1 John 3.8. If you memorize any verse this morning, memorize it. And this is actually the second half of the verse. So if you memorize half of a verse this morning, memorize 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How did he do it? Through his sinless life, his criminal's death, his resurrection, his ascension, and he will come back one day to fully and finally defeat him. 
the stronger one is here. Jesus says, the very thing you just saw me do to this demon is the very thing that I've come to do to Satan and the kingdom of darkness on this earth. And then he says, whoever's with me, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And this is important. In church, like I said, we need to tell the whole gospel and we need to see this. Jesus ends this parable with, you're either with me or against me. He does not leave us a middle ground. He does not let us stay on the fence. He says, if you're not with me, then you're a part of the kingdom of darkness. So to his opposers, to the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, if you're opposing this, you're opposing my kingdom and you're a part of the kingdom of darkness. And to those who follow him and are with him, he's saying, hey, armor up. If you're with me, be with me. We are at war. Come with me. If you're not with me, you are against me. And Jesus had zero problem saying this. So we don't need to have a problem saying it either. He came to separate separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the believers from the unbelievers. He doesn't give us an option to play the fence. He calls us to declare our allegiance. But then he uses an agricultural term, which is interesting. And he says, if you don't gather with me, you scatter. Why does he do that? Because for us to go to war against the enemy, you know what we do? We go back to the first parable. We sow the gospel seed. We don't raise our fists and go to war with people. Our weapons aren't against flesh and blood. We have divine power given by God to destroy strongholds. What is that? It's the gospel. How do we advance the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness? It's not through your political leader. It's not through your own might or your own effort. It's through the gospel. We sow the gospel seed and God will be sovereign over the hearts of the people. He'll be sovereign over the response. We just be faithful to the message and sow the seed. That's how we work with him to advance the kingdom, that we gather with him. Jesus said in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. We often get this verse backwards, right? We love to get up here and I'm about to preach, Lord, we pray for the harvest. Jesus says, no, don't pray for the harvest, it's plentiful. Pray for laborers, pray for workers, You're praying for the wrong thing. I'm sovereign over the harvest. The harvest is ready. We just need workers. And he says, hey, if you want to work, if you want to be used by me to advance the kingdom, then come on. We're scattering gospel seed. So what do we do with this message as we close? I want you to see that the exorcism, which is I've never said this phrase before, the exorcism was for invitation. Notice who Jesus puts the spotlight on at the end of the parable. I'm the stronger one. It's me. Follow me. Come with me. Be with me and be used by me to rescue the world. I'm the one who has come to destroy the works of the devil. The stronger one is here. I don't know why we don't talk about this at Christmas. I told Will, if we don't preach this today, I'm preaching it at Christmas. Because this is it. Christmas Day, the first Christmas was D-Day. It was Normandy. It was the stronger one showing up to an occupied land and taking what belongs to him, taking it back. The stronger one is here. The reason for the season is destruction, right? It is. The son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. His days are numbered. Jesus destroyed the penalty of our sin, as Tyler talked about at the cross He put his spirit in us and he's destroying the power of sin in our lives through his spirit and he will destroy the very presence of sin when he returns and comes again.
The stronger one is here. So what does that mean for you and me? The greatest fighters are the ones who know they've been fought for. We see this statistically all around the world. You want to know the children that fight the hardest and work the hardest and, and keep running and pursuing things in this life? It's the one who know they've been, knows that they've been fought for. Children who have been seen and loved and cherished and chosen and parented and provided for perform better in any measurable category that we have. Education, emotional health, you name it. That they just perform better. Why? Because the greatest fighters are the, no, the ones who know that they've been fought for. In church, if you're in Christ, you have been fought for. The stronger one has come. He has destroyed the bondage of, of the enemy over your life. He's broken, he's broken the chains and he is now using you to share the gospel and to break the chains in other people's lives. When you and I remember, or I'll say this, when we forget the gospel and we think that God loves us because of our performance and our good behavior and we think that we're just being good enough and that's the reason God loves us, then we'll keep our religious game and we'll look down at other people who are um, slaves to sin and slaves to Satan and in bondage to him and we'll expect them to behave their way out of it. But when you and I remember that the only difference between us and them is that we've met the stronger one, we're no different, we're no better, we're no wiser, we're no smarter, we've just gotten to meet the stronger one face to face, then we'll do whatever we've gotta do to make sure the people around us, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, get to meet him too. And that's the goodness of the gospel. Church, you've been fought for. Remember that. When you remember that, to the degree that you think about what Christ has done, the lengths that he has gone to rescue you and redeem you and break the bondage of the enemy in your life, to that same degree, you will look at those around us, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in your office, who are lost in sin and bondage and love it and don't even know it, destined for hell. And you'll do whatever you gotta do to make sure they meet the stronger one too. Let's be a church. Let's be a people that do that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you that our only hope, our only boast this morning is not our ability to be smart, to be good. God, we need to stop fooling ourselves. None of us are smart enough or good enough, and that's the gospel, that the stronger one has come, and he was smart enough, and he was good enough, and he was righteous enough and holy enough, and then he went to the cross willingly to die for sinners to rescue us from bondage and simultaneously deal the decisive blow to the enemy. God, Satan has been defeated at the cross and at the resurrection. He's on a short leash. His days are numbered. And God, we cannot wait until you come and deal the final blow. But in the meantime, you tell us to not count your patience as slowness, but God, it's grace that we might be used by you to go and rescue others with the gospel, that you're waiting out of your mercy that we, former slaves, would go and point slaves to the strong one. So God, help us to do that with our lives. We lift our hands today, not as people who are righteous in our own works.